right now on Higher Journeys with Alexis Brooks. Well, I think that the government just has finally decided that uh, the majority of Americans believe that this is real. Uh, Probably millions of people have had sightings. Uh, Thousands or hundreds of thousands have reported them uh, over the years. And uh, it's, it's time, I think, to for slow disclosure. Lately, we have witnessed an increasing buzz about the reality of UFOs in our mainstream news outlets. Though headlines about official reports, including footage and witness testimony, have been slowly seeping into the mainstream for several years now, there seems to be an exponential increase in these stories and a noticeable decrease in the tongue-in-cheek tone surrounding the idea of UFOs, UAPs, and yes, non-human intelligence, classically dubbed ETs. So where is this going and why now? Simultaneously, we're also approaching the 60th anniversary of one of the most important and controversial UFO abduction stories in U.S. history. That being the still baffling case of Betty and Barney Hill, who while driving back from a vacation in Niagara Falls en route to their home in Portsmouth, New Hampshire in 1961, experienced a close encounter with a UFO along with two hours of missing time. Subsequent hypnosis sessions with both the Hills would reveal a traumatic and life-altering abduction by extraterrestrials, a claim that many skeptics still question to this day. But what really happened on that stretch of road near Franconia Notch, an Indian head in Lincoln, New Hampshire, that would turn Betty and Barney Hill's world upside down? Did something alien really emerge out of the skies above this small town, capture Betty and Barney, and perform their will on them? This story, and particularly its aftermath, has many dimensions. One woman who knows this account, perhaps better than anyone alive today, is the niece of Betty and Barney Hill, Kathleen Martin, a consummate investigator of the UFO phenomenon in her own right, who also specializes in working with experiencers of alien contact. Kathleen has tackled some of the most important and mind-twisting elements to the Hills case, as well as countless others who say they have had regular interaction with non-human intelligence. I spoke with Kathleen right on the heels of the release of the 60th anniversary edition of a book she originally co-wrote with the late UFO investigator Stanton Friedman, Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience. Kathleen had much to share with me about this latest book release that includes so much more of the scientific studies and the evidence that has commenced since the book was first published in 2007. She also shared her thoughts on what she feels is going on right now right smack in the middle of what many feel will be imminent disclosure. But who or what will the disclosure be coming from? Stay tuned for this revealing conversation with Kathleen Martin. The first thing I want to say to Kathleen Martin is how extraordinary you look. I haven't seen you in two or three years. And I think we were last together at Contact in the Desert. Was it 2019? And my, oh my, how things have changed. And you look radiant, my dear. I'm so glad to see you. Thank you for joining us. Nice to be with you again. Mm, lovely. Even during the wonky times, there's. it's always great to see a smiling face. You know, I had Julia Cannon on our last show, of yeah. which you left her a beautiful message, of which she was delighted. Uh-huh. So she sends her best and uh, another smiling face. It's always nice to see a smiling face from an intelligent woman that have so much to share. And you have a lot to share, obviously. I cannot believe, this was before I was born, but not too much before I was born. 60 years have gone by just about in September that your aunt and uncle Betty and Barney Hill were abducted in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Folks, this is one of the reasons why I wanted to have Kathleen on during this uh, timely episode. Uh, So I want to talk about that to the extent that you can, because you have re-released the book, your book, uh, oh my God. Captured, captured Betty and Barney Hill UFO experience. And it's not just a re-release, it's an update. There is right. uh, an, a couple of new chapters, one on Stanton Friedman, 
and the other on all of the scientific studies and evidence that has been done since the first book was published in 2007. So it's a thick chapter on all of the updates and um, it's just more compelling than ever. You can't talk about it or you can. I think I you had mentioned that you can't. I can okay. not talk about it. I'm sorry. <laughs> you can't talk about it. Well, you can read it though, folks, because it is, is it available now? Kathleen, is it? it yes, the book is available and okay. you can get autographed copies from me at oh. Kathleen-Marden, M-A-R-D-E-N.com. It's available in all online bookstores, even Walmart and Target. Excellent. Yes. Excellent. Please forgive me, journeyers. For, you know, I started to say I was hearing chosen in my head. I knew it was a C and of course I had it right here. So forgive me. I had a little brain freeze. <laughs> updated, not just re-release. Well, the, the title was re-released, but we know that there was, there's a chunky update to it. So mm -hmm. uh, how does it feel 60 years uh, hence? And uh, what do you think has changed in terms of the perception, particularly, let's just get right into this, in terms of the skepticism of which your blessed uh, aunt and uncle endured so much of then and now, 60 years later, six decades later, any difference in the measure of skepticism when you juxtapose the two? There's an absolute difference in the skepticism. Way back in 1961, uh, even organizations like NICAP uh, did not believe that uh, a UFO sighting was real if it happened more than one time. They weren't really willing to accept alien abduction. Mm -hmm. And uh, that really uh, presented a problem to anyone who was having that kind of experience. So uh, in terms of skepticism, it, it was coming from all directions. Uh, Betty and Barney did not want their case to go public. Uh, there were, it was to remain confidential always. Uh, they were both involved in the civil rights movement in 1965, before the, uh, the story went public as the result of a violation of confidentiality. Uh, Barney had been appointed to the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights as an advisory board member for the state of New Hampshire. He had received uh, an award from Sergeant Shriver and the governor of New Hampshire for the good work that he did through the Office of Economic Opportunity to set up the Rockingham County Community Action Program, along with my aunt and others as well. But he led the charge. So uh, he was recognized. He was legal redress to the NAACP and on the regional board as well. Uh, they were invited to Lyndon Johnson's inauguration and uh, went. And I, <laughs> being uh, their niece and very close to them um, from my high school, uh, campaigned as much as a high school student can. And I also received an invitation and had gone to that inauguration. When that... Uh, was released as the result of violation of confidentiality, all of this ceased. Barney was not reappointed to his position on the U.S. Civil Rights Commission. Uh, there were so many things that changed, and it was so distressing uh, for our family. We met as a family and, and tried to determine what we should do next, because not only did it impact Betty and Barney, it affected the entire family. Mm -hmm. And so we decided that since the cat was already out of the bag, that Betty and Barney should speak about it for the first time. And they did agree to speak at the Unitarian Church in Dover, New Hampshire, in early December, November 1965. And uh, to an overflowing audience, and they were introduced by the public information officer from Pease Air Force Base. So that was quite remarkable, I thought. There was a huge difference between what um, members of the military were saying, 
what scientists were saying <laughs> and what disinformants were saying. But the disinformants had a loud voice. And Philip Klass, who was probably the most prolific um, anti-US UFO disinformant of the 20th century, uh, just rewrote Betty's and Barney's story and their personalities as well, injecting doubt into every step along the way of their uh, event, their, their trip home from the vacation in Niagara Falls and Montreal, and uh, just totally misrepresented it. And then scientists such as Carl Sagan somehow believed Philip Klass rather than Betty and Barney and uh, carried that story to the public in the articles that he wrote. Many other scientists did as well. And it was so disappointing uh, to see that false information being disseminated. I have a question and a comment. The comment is, I have always been skeptical of those who are in vehement, it's not even about denial, but in debunking. I'm skeptical of their motivation. Mm -hmm. I don't know well, if you want to go down that rabbit hole. I do. I go, do. Please do. Um, it, Stanton Friedman and I did a great deal of archival research at Physical Archives when for our book, uh, Fact, Fiction, and Flying Saucers. Mm -hmm. And we took on Donald Menzel for one, the Harvard professor uh, who uh, Stanton was intrigued by because he was allegedly a member of MJ-12, yet in 1953, he published his first anti-UFO book. So Stanton went to Harvard after Menzel's death and he had to get uh, permission to view his archival collection. But what he found out when he did is that Donald Menzel had a longer association with uh, naval intelligence and the NSA than anyone, he said. And Stanton found a letter where Donald Menzel wrote to John Fitzgerald Kennedy saying, I can tell you more when we are properly cleared to one another. Uh, I did research as well on him and discovered that he was very closely connected to uh, government-funded projects, very closely connected to the CIA and the NSA. So uh, that makes it very clear what kind of job he had. I also found a letter he wrote to Carl Sagan, uh, Carl early on in his career, had an open mind about UFOs. But he wrote a letter to him saying that uh, when he was a young man, he was sort of a rebel. He didn't uh, lockstep to the zeitgeist of the old guard. Uh, those are my own words. But uh, And that he did extraordinarily well when he decided to comply with his elders and, and work with mm -hmm. them. And that Carl Sagan had such a bright career ahead that it would be so good to see him uh, complying as well. And then I, I did a lot of research on Philip Class at the American Philosophical Society. Met Donald Menzel was on the board of directors at the society and Philip Class's archival collection is there as well as Menzel's and, and part of uh, the Condon report uh, and uh, communication between Ed Condon, uh, who did the scientific study on UFOs at the University of Colorado, and Robert Lowe, who was the project coordinator. It's a real eye-opener when you read that information, and it's all in our book, Fact, Fiction, and Flying Saucers. But uh, I also have Philip Class's FBI file and uh, found out that Philip Class uh, had violated uh, national security twice. He was uh, a writer uh, for uh, his aviation and space technology magazine that was located in Washington, DC. And uh, he had in articles uh, 
reveal classified information. And he got into hot water over that, but he couldn't be taken to court because then um, everyone would know about that classified information. Right. Uh, also, uh, he was suspected of uh, being a spy. And uh, he had many, many meetings at the Soviet embassy. He uh, was doing things socially with a young man from the Soviet embassy. He was being tailed by the FBI. His apartment was searched by the FBI. They were looking for radio equipment that would uh, broadcast into Eastern Europe. And so, uh, I, I know, and Stanton told me this, that uh, people who were in this kind of trouble could be given a deal. Mm -hmm. You work for us, you show your loyalty to our government, uh, and we you know, will not send you to jail or take you to court or, or whatever. Uh, in 1966, um, Philip Class suddenly became interested in UFOs and read his first book on the topic, according to one of his books that I have. And it was The Incident in Exeter. And then after that, he read uh, the Betty, Betty and Barney's uh, first book, The Interrupted Journey, and by John G. Fuller, mm. uh, that they cooperated with him on Fuller. on, And so uh, class... I do believe uh, just uh, was working for the government. And uh, he was became very involved in the Condon Committee, great friends with Robert Lowe and Ed Condon. In fact, Ed Condon recommended him as the go-to guy for the mainstream media. I have a letter to the president of McGraw-Hill on that. And, you know, it's uh, they belong to a small group of approved individuals who were working together uh, to carry out the government's plan uh, to disinform the public regarding UFOs and contact with extraterrestrials. That's the bottom line, I guess, right? The yes. vehemency is coming from what they, the legitimacy of the phenomenon versus the illegitimacy of it. Yes. I think many Absolutely. of us feel that way. Nothing's changed. So thank you so much. You are a veritable encyclopedia. No surprise. This woman's been at it for a long time and has skin in the game. We're going to get to that as from the experiential aspect. So here we are now with the drip drip. It's, you know, I used to call it the slow drip drip. Now it's becoming the faucets turning on a little bit more. Are these factions still up to their old tricks or are they relenting finally, you think, with what's happening? We're talking about, you know, I just noted two articles, one uh, CBS online uh, uh, article headline, uh, Pentagon confirms authenticity of video showing unidentified flying objects at Al. Not the first we've heard of it, but recent mm -hmm. news. New York Times article headline. This is something a little bit different, but it's still coming from the same source Mm -hmm. They are not alone. UFO reports surged in the pandemic. And if I can, I'm going to put up a visual for both of those articles so you can check it out in the link. Uh, the provision that was tucked into the last COVID-19 stimulus bill to let uh, uh, an unclassified report come down uh, mandated in 180 days. We're now looking at June. I heard there's been some pushback on that. Mm -hmm. What's happening here? all relative to what you just said, Kathleen? Well, I think that the government just has finally decided that uh, the majority of Americans believe that this is real. Uh, probably millions of people have had sightings. Uh, thousands or hundreds of thousands have reported them uh, over the years. And uh, it's it's time, I think, to for slow disclosure. And uh, I think that the reason for this is that uh, Louis Elizondo, who uh, ran the ATIP program, went public 
And he had those three videos, the Tic Tac and the Gimbal and another one. And uh, the Navy pilots came forward, highly trained, many, many hours of flying, years as um, Navy uh, officers, credible, incredibly intelligent, uh, credible people are making statements. And it's coming more from mainstream than from the UFO community. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And, you know, the UFO community was attacked by people like Philip Klass and Edward Condon, not the science, mainstream scientific community or military community. Uh, and so <laughs> I think that that difference is probably the reason that uh, it is being taken more seriously. And I think that they know now that this is not a threat, but I'm afraid they're going to play it as a threat. So, uh, you know, uh, two different things. Uh, if I can go back in history again, in July of 1952, Major General John A. Samford um, called the largest press conference since the end of World War II. And this was after uh, so many people saw UFOs over Washington, D.C. They were on radar. Uh, uh, pl Air Force planes were scrambled to chase them. And uh, John Samford began the press conference by saying, these things have been seen in the sky dating back to biblical times. They generally come back about once every hundred years, and then they leave again. But in the 20th century, they came back and they haven't left. And he said that the Air Force was looking at that uh, very closely. They were not going to be frantic about it, but they were going to do a scientific investigation. And, you know, this has been going on a long time. The public hasn't known about this, but uh, those of us who have been in the field and who uh, have access to the archival records do know about this. And I think it's very important. Uh, that we know all of this information, and and they have not been a threat. They have not uh, invaded. They have not uh, subjugated humans uh, to any level whatsoever. Uh, there's been a lot of fear and hysteria about using humans as uh, lab rats. I disagree with that. I used to believe it, but the more I know the more I disagree with Why that so, statement. If I may ask. Because the majority of experiencers, as they age, have been able to uh, enter into conversations with these non-human entities. They've been able to receive downloads of information. There is a transformation taking place among long-time experiencers. And they realize that they're part of a program that they volunteered to participate in. And in that program, it is an effort to raise human consciousness and spirituality because our technological development is out of sync with our spiritual growth. And that presents a serious problem, uh, particularly with our use of nuclear weapons. Uh, and they have seen this on other planets where the planet did not survive. And they, for the most part, are benevolent and concerned about the survival of our planet. This is the reason they stayed. This is the reason that they are showing themselves more and more to naval pilots. Um, they wanted to speak to government officials back in 1954. They may have. Uh, I have the files of a Navy uh, rear admiral uh, his, uh, who was in con conversation with Wilbert Smith, who was the scientist who was the Canadian's uh, UFO guy and ran Project Magnet and uh, Project Second Story for the Canadian government. And they were in conversation with a woman 
who was in conversation with uh, these non-human entities who said that they were uh, extraterrestrials and they learned how to communicate as well. Mm -hmm. uh, Robert Smith and also Commander Larson. Uh, in fact, I have just written an article and placed it on my website about that investigation. Uh, so I, I really think that uh, they're not a threat to us. Wow. I think this is a good time for a quick break because I need to catch my breath and think about <laughs> the next question I'm going to ask okay. you, which will be a follow-up to your most incredible this is this is really this is one of the best interviews I've done in quite a while. <laughs> Veritable encyclopedia. Interesting comments, Kathleen. Let's take a quick break. On the other side of this, I want to talk about, uh, I want to get into the experiential aspect a bit more, but I also want to talk about when you say the beings, which mm -hmm. beings are we talking about? Which beings are we talking about, Journeyers? We'll be right back right after this break. We are living at a time of great challenge and incredible opportunity. A time when taking life into our own hands, charting our own course, and finding our own answers is more accessible than ever before. During this time, you may be asking yourself, what am I called to do? What if I could discover not only my own inner healing power, but help others all over this planet discover theirs? We all have the ability to heal ourselves, but it takes a special approach, a unique approach. Quantum Healing Hypnosis Technique, also known as QHHT, a method developed by pioneering hypnotherapist and past life regression expert Dolores Cannon, is the approach that thousands have used and taught to access the deeper aspect of the self for healing at the core level. We all have the ability to tap into the higher self, the oversoul, the higher consciousness, and we have the means to help others to do the same. QHHT is designed to help the individual access the subconscious, the storehouse of all information through visualization at the deepest level imaginable, a process that Dolores Cannon discovered and refined during her decades of working with individuals from around the globe. Training with QHHT will provide the guidance and give you the tools to help others tap that incredible force within. Now you can access this exclusive training online, bringing the tools needed right to you so you can assist others in finding their own answers and achieve total healing. This is powerful and needed now more than ever. Be a part of the pioneering work and legacy of Dolores Cannon by learning QHHT. Start today by clicking on the link in the description of this show to get started. And when you do, don't forget to mention Higher Journeys to get a 10% course discount when you sign up. It's time we all take back control of our lives and chart the course for success at every level. It's time to discover the power of quantum healing hypnosis technique by helping others to help themselves. And by doing this, we are helping to heal the world. All right, we are back. You're watching Higher Journeys. My guest is Kathleen Martin, and we are talking about it. This is bigger than a U the UFO phenomenon. This is bigger than the Betty and Barney Hill abduction. These are all big things, but you're really getting into your thoughts about something that we may have been mistaking all along. You gave me a lot to chew on there, and I had about two minutes to do it, a little less. The first thing I want to ask you, Kathleen, is when we say the beings... Whom are we talking about? Now, we know those of us that have done the research have looked into the possibility of dozens and dozens and dozens of, of beings and offshoots of those beings, dozens of different species of greys and subsets at al. Uh, I'm always careful when I say the beings are this or that, because I feel there's a spectrum, including a spectrum of motivations, in my humble opinion. But are you saying that... There may not be any uh, beings or species out there that don't have uh, malevolent intent? No, I'm not saying that. Okay. Uh, I'm saying that the benevolent beings are doing a pretty good job at keeping the malevolent ones at bay. Ah. And also, I have come to uh, change my mind about the draconian reptilian types. Uh, I do believe that based upon a tremendous amount of research uh, and personal experience that these are 
malevolent interdimensionals and not extraterrestrials. Mm -hmm. uh, they're just horrible, horrible uh, entities that take uh, humans who are vibrating at a lower frequency uh, to a place where terrible, terrible things happen. And I don't want to say anything more about that. It's horrific. But uh, in terms of uh, who am I talking about? Well, I have worked on three major studies, two with PhD research scientists and uh, on a little more than 5,000 experiencers. Uh, and we asked what uh, non-human entities are you interacting with? Mm -hmm. And uh, number one, uh, is uh, the grays and uh, different varieties of the grays. When I say the grays, that could be anyone from uh, someone who's about five to five and a half feet tall and looks fairly human and, and Asian uh, to the, the small three and a half foot tall ones with the spindly arms and legs and the large heads and black eyes. So uh, that's one, just one general category that I put them into. Uh, number two for one of our studies, but number one for the other that didn't uh, put all of the grays in one category were human types, uh, non-humans who look very, very much like us. Mm -hmm. um, then the next one is an insectoid uh, type, mantis types. Right. Uh, you know, with the Native Americans, there's also the ant people, but... Uh, that could come under insectoid. But most of the people that I have worked with um, are, are not being taken by the ant people. It is the mantis types. Mm -hmm. I've heard uh, that as well. And they often work in conjunction with the greys. And then uh, there is a friendly reptilian type that uh, is more like a, a lizard or... Um, snake skin or something like that. And many of those experiencers say that they they are kind as well. Um, I have uh, done a uh, worked on an experiment with a man who from the age of eight has been communicating with a council of non-human entities. And uh, he was a police officer in England before he moved to the United States. And he lives in the same town that I live in. A group of researchers did a two-year study with him uh, to try to uh, collect evidence that this was real. And we did have evidence. We never were able to see them, but we could certainly feel them with a strong uh, electrical tingling through really? bodies. Yes. Talk we about that able, a little bit more. Yeah. That's... We were able to measure uh, an increase in the temperature of the room where mm -hmm. they were standing as they uh, spoke through. Uh, his name is Kevin Briggs. This is the man. And oh, yes, uh, of course. Yes. And they mm -hmm. educated us on consciousness, on the, their history in being here. And the council, what I was getting to is the members of the council. Uh, there are two tall human types. There uh, are two gray types, one taller than the other. There is a blue avian. There is a tall white. And uh, there is, let me think, uh, an insectoid, a, a mantis type. All very nice, all very friendly. And uh, but there are no reptilians at all. And they said that the reason that the reptilians are not part of that council is that they believe that they own this planet and, and that's their attitude. And they have that attitude toward every planet that they uh, are present on. Uh, so they just hold them at bay as best they can, too. Uh, whereas the rest of the council is is friendly and, and benevolent. Would this be analogous, not analogous, but would this also be considered the Galactic Federation? Or is yes, that is, okay. Okay. They could be part of the, the Galactic Federation. They uh -huh. have stated that. 
before we leave the topic, we don't have to leave the topic of the reptilians. And of course, there is this sort of stigma attached to, for those that even believe that there is these, these beings or intelligent beings exist within that community there has been a stigma attached to all reptilians are bad. Again, all aliens are bad, all aliens are good, all reptilians. It was Barbara Lamb who I interviewed uh, at her home quite a few years ago now, who spoke openly about her interaction with a very large muscular reptilian being who uh, she met in her living room and felt a sense of love toward. Yes, she told me. Uh, A very nice, friendly reptilian. So, you know, you... You cannot lump all of them into they're all evil or they're all benevolent and kind and highly spiritual. Uh, They run the gamut, just like humans do. Uh, We're not all nice people and we're not all bad. And you certainly can't allocate bad or good to the kind of species they are either. They're bad bad and good black people, bad and good red, bad and good yellow, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Right. Absolutely. And so many researchers tend to do that. And, mm-hmm. uh, I, I like to look at the entire spectrum. Of course. You know, as we juxtapose uh, just what I just said about there are no, uh, not all bad people. You can't, you can't associate a bad person with a race, et cetera. Mm-hmm. The more I think about Kathleen, our own, aspects of ourselves, our own species, and juxtapose it with those beings that we're talking about, the more I think this is really about understanding our, not our differences, but our relationship to these beings. I've always felt, and I've always said that I feel that there is a symbiosis somehow that it's that's existing with the contact encounters, but also could they be a mirror of us and us of them on some other level that they're trying to get us to understand? Boy, I, I don't know. I can't answer that. Have you thought about that though? Have you ever thought about? Um, I, I just don't know. I, I always think of them as being uh, a different species that you cannot apply uh, human reasoning, human thought, to, to them and what they do. But I am aware that there are species who uh, say that they uh, are not extraterrestrial be, uh, in the sense that they've never been here. There are uh, some species who are coming back, who are visiting with humans, who claim that at one time, uh, a long ago in our history, they lived on this planet and uh, that there was an environmental collapse and they had the technology to move on. And um, not everyone did. There, were, there was a small group who moved on and eventually uh, found uh, a planet that they settled on that is in twilight most of the time. They say it's a binary star system. Mm-hmm. I've heard and, that. Yes. So... Uh, so many questions. Yes, and and also uh, when Phyllis Budinger had a DNA test done on Betty's dress, uh, that DNA belonged to uh, a Chinese uh, person, but was it a, really a Chinese person? I'm not aware that any Chinese person ever touched her dress and left DNA in on the shoulder area. Uh, it is the blonde Chinese. And so, you know, I've, I've spoken with Bill Chalker, who uh, was the uh, researcher scientist who worked on uh, the, the hair of the alien DNA from Australia. But I have not received an answer on uh, whether or not this was the same DNA. I don't know what to say. <laughs> I have no words. Let's, uh, I'm trying to think of where I want to go from here. I really wanted to, I mean, we've talked uh, a good bit about your, your aunt and uncle, and I wanted to get into your, uh, 
I, what did I read in the in the latest book, the latest iteration of the book, that you were quite the devil's advocate with your, we're going to go back a little bit now, mm-hmm. uh, quite the devil's advocate when you were in discussion with your aunt uh, uh, Betty about all of this. What was that like? Uh, just because I know you're, you've got a researcher's sort of head. I can see yeah. that. Um, and I know that you were, you did a formal investigation of their case. I can see that, that whole, that character in you coming, coming out as we're talking. But when you're talking to family and you're hearing the story from them, or for, particularly in talking to your aunt and playing devil's advocate, what happened there? What was, what was that like? And then eventually you became what? An experiencer. So I wanted you to comment on that as well. Not eventually you became, we had the realization uh, yes. Yeah. I, was, out there. I had read so many skeptical articles and, and watched television programs with skepticism and they were different from my memory. But I realized that our memories uh, can alter and change over the years. So I thought, well, maybe that's what happened to me. I really want to find the answers. And when I do research, uh, I don't base it on someone else's research. I, I get into the nitty gritty. Mm-hmm. I go to the investigation itself. So my investigation of Betty and Barney's case was extraordinarily extensive, uh, playing devil's advocate with Betty. My husband and I drove the entire route that Betty and Barney drove on September, that, that mid-September uh, long weekend in 1961. And uh, uh, by that time, I had memorized the hypnosis tapes. I also did a comparative analysis of the hypnosis tapes uh, to attempt to see if or determine if Betty had only repeated a series of dreams that she had for five nights starting 10 days after their UFO encounter. And if Barney might have uh simply absorbed that information that was one of the skeptics arguments mm-hmm. so i uh, having a scientific background in social science and i also studied chemistry and physics um so mm-hmm. both sort of backgrounds but more in social science uh i wanted an unbiased viewpoint and so i played devil's advocate with betty uh trying to uh, fracture whatever she said uh, and uh, then looking at the evidence and determining was this real evidence of uh, an encounter. And, uh, you know, I did it nicely. I wasn't mean to Betty. I just uh, challenged her and asked questions that were skeptical. And it, I, I received a lot of clarification from her in doing that. And I also uh, very slowly walked her through what happened that night, 1961. And I wanted uh, her to not just tell uh, her side of the story as she always did, and, and repeat it over and over again. And she started to do that. And I said, no, I don't want that. Let's go, let's start with the car when mm-hmm. the roadblock was there in, in the road. And what happened then? And then, you know, worked our way to how her dress was torn as she was uh, fighting for her life as they were taking her onto the craft. And uh, she didn't trust them, even though they were reassuring her that she would be fine. They only had a few simple tests to do, and then she they would be released and would be on their way. Um, and finally into the craft. And to the beginning of the tests that she was having, where she talked about uh, she couldn't see what was going on because uh, she was so frightened at their appearance and especially the little one who was standing at the doorway looking in on her that uh, she kept her eyes closed most of the time. And uh, 
Uh, that gave me a lot of insight into what was actually going on. And then she finally came to the point where she simply could not go on. Uh, it was that those memories were were bringing back anxiety. Sure, I can and, only imagine. Yeah, and so you know, I said, "Fine, you know, fine. That's fine. I I have the hypnosis tapes anyway, but I would certainly not want to make her suffer from anxiety." Um, did she though? Did this was one of the questions I wanted to ask? I mean, look, you, you lived this, and so many of us know this detail and that detail or have read, but really from a personal level and what you observed, particularly with Barney, there's still a lot of that story that I don't know, but it seems like he, he really took this, taking it hard. That's not even the right word, but just this was visceral for both of them. Yes. Well, Barney developed post-traumatic stress disorder and what they called conversion hysteria, where he, as a result of what happened, uh, developed bleeding ulcers and high blood pressure. He, he was having a lot of emotional difficulty. And I think there are a number of reasons for this, but I think that the primary reason is that he was the one who followed that craft into the field as it uh, hovered only 100 feet above him and about 50 feet in the distance. He was the one who had the conscious, continuous recall of observing those non-human entities looking down at him, dressed in black, shiny uniforms. And all of a sudden, all but one turned and went to what appeared to be a panel. Their arms went up, and he could now see them from the tops of their heads down to their knees. And one looked over his shoulder, and uh, Barney thought that he had smiled. and. A uh, little red light started to slide out from the craft, and something started to drop down from the bottom of the craft. Now, Barney didn't know what that is. We know today that that is the carrier beam that they use. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, back then, Barney thought that there was a plan for him. He was looking at the face of the one who was standing and just staring down at him. And that plan was to capture Barney like a quote, a bug in a net, close quote. And that's when he pulled the binoculars from his eyes so forcefully, he broke the strap and went screaming back to the car to Betty that they had to get out of there or they were going to be captured. And uh, as he was entering the car, he saw that this craft was now moving in their direction. Mm -hmm. And within uh, moments, uh, they heard a series of code-like buzzing sounds striking the trunk of the vehicle. It caused their car to vibrate and for a tingling, that electrical tingling sensation to pass through their bodies. The next thing they knew, they were 35 miles down the highway with memories of finding themselves on a dirt road with tall trees all around, of encountering a roadblock and of... Uh, observing a huge fiery orb that appeared to be sitting on the ground. Uh, but they couldn't remember anything more. When they arrived home, they found physical evidence. They found they were later than they anticipated uh, their arrival would be by two to three hours. Uh, Betty's dress was torn. Uh, Barney's shoes were so deeply scraped that he had to buy new shoes. All of those things weighed heavily on Barney. Um, for Betty. Uh, she had her own working through to do as well. But fortunately for her, she had those dreams with that where she worked through her anxiety. And these occurred just before she awakened in the morning. And so they were a little bit hypnopompic. They contained uh, information that she had conscious recall for. But sandwiched between this was uh, an... an a UFO abduction by these very human looking uh, people who uh, they looked Southern European, black hair, regular human features, uh, blue cadets uniforms, hats. They didn't, those entities uh, that Betty and Varney saw in the road and remembered through hypnosis were not those entities. 
They were gray complected, larger heads uh, than humans have in proportion to their bodies, spindly limbs, very large eyes that glistened. Uh, they uh, reminded them of a Cheshire cat, Barney said, or Betty said, a jack-o'-lantern, a, a pumpkin head, uh, she called it. So, you know, it, it was different, but it was a combination of fantasy and reality. That's what Betty's dreams were. And uh, that's what I worked out in my comparative analysis of, of the two. But uh, Barney did suffer trauma uh, much more than Betty. I'm not sure if it's because this wasn't Betty's first rodeo and it was Barney's or in addition to his conscious recall or not. But I suspect that uh, since my mother was also an experiencer and we kept that information confidential until after uh, she left this planet, physically at least, um, that uh, it might be generational. I believe it is generational mm. right. in your family. If you're enjoying this episode and want to get more conversations about all things intriguing, inspiring, and unusual, be sure to subscribe to Higher Journeys on YouTube. And once you do, don't forget to hit that notification bell to receive an announcement as soon as a new episode is posted. And now, back to our show. We're back. Uh, we had to take another quick little break because I'm going to tell you, Journey, something really bizarre happened where Kathleen, fortunately, was able to continue talking. And by the time I'm able to go through this show, I'll see how it happened. But I got knocked offline. Kathleen took the helm for a little while. So hopefully there'll be no interruption from the, your vantage point because there was for mine. So I had to take a little break. We're back. And uh, we're going to continue now. In fact, we're going to be winding down soon. I want to let you know, we are going to be going, of course, to the Patreon after show where Kathleen has decided that she would share with our members the day she heard, she and her family heard from Betty and Barney about what had happened. So uh, on that date in 1961. So be sure to join us over there. We will, in fact, I'll put the banner up. I'm still running the same banner from before. This is because we got knocked off, folks. I don't know what happened. It's technology. So, you know, what are you going to do? Anyway, <laughs> let's, uh, let's see, where would we want to wind down this conversation? I know what I'd like to ask you. I was hoping to get to Kathleen sort of the juxtaposition of the paranormal aspect of this whole phenomenon. I don't know, maybe if you'd like, maybe we should touch on that because I think that's important. I know you uh, in your own independent research as well as I'm trying to get this banner off. Here we go. There we go. It's been running a little too long. You've done a lot of research on this intersection, if you will, of what we call classic paranormal in the life of experiencers. I know Free has done a lot of research as well, uh, the former Free, because I don't believe Free is free as we know it anymore. It's now sort of migrated into something else. Nonetheless, they have yeah, some great I, data. I was part of Free too on the advisory board. Oh yeah, and I, I was sort of an ambassador for Free as well, but they, they were able to collect some amazing data. Yes. Let's talk, I think my, my God is telling me, let's let's maybe end with that. Because a lot of people are having experiences. You and I were talking offline, and I shared with you that there are a lot of people that seem exponentially more interested in this subject, but also are talking about their own experiences more these days. What's going on? What, what, what's That's the first question. What's going on with that lately, you think? And then maybe a couple comments on the paranormal aspect. Um, so... You're asking me about the paranormal? Well, I, I think the first question I have is, I always love to put this within the framework of the now. What is going on, you think, right now where there seems to be this need to gravitate toward these subjects, but not just as an observer, but those that are admitting, I'm having experiences too. I don't know if you're seeing that or not, but I certainly have. Do you have yes. any thoughts on the now of it all from People the experience? Are yeah, there, there are more avenues for people to talk about their experiences without being criticized. Uh, I set up a program through the Mutual UFO Network that I ran for 10 years, where uh, experiencers could uh, get in touch with the ERT 
and uh, speak with a non-judgmental, kind, compassionate listener. And so we made it safe for people to talk. And, and it really helped people a great deal to do that. Uh, we're still receiving about 100 reports a month and have for all of those years. So uh, people, when they feel that they can speak about this comfortably, will we'll do so. And so many experiencers today think that something is in the works. Something big is going to happen. We don't know what it is, mm-hmm. but it's widespread that uh, there is a new understanding. Uh, there is a new level of communication and uh, sort of a shift in uh, point of view. And uh, so that's where people seem to be now. That okay. they can, they're comfortable. They're not going to be ridiculed for the most part. Mm-hmm. That's where I was going. That's where I wanted to get to. Really been trying to put my finger on this. I'm always interested, even though I suppose ultimately, if you are one to feel that there is no time as we understand it, we still live in a, within a linear framework. And so the now, here we are, 2020, 2021, obviously, the, the, you know, the elephant in the room <laughs> of what's going on, but this juxtaposition of this interest going up, I don't think is an accident. I think we're about, I think we're about to reach a crescendo is mm-hmm. what I'm thinking, bigger than disclosure as we understand it to be. One of, one of the questions I want I think I'll pose to you is you, you, you feel that we're heading down this road of ultimate disclosure to whatever extent it can happen. Do you feel that the pressure may be coming from some of the beings themselves to say, all right, guys, you let them know or we will. There are some beings who uh, I am told uh, are interested in open contact, but I've also been told that for the most part, uh, they're doing their work quietly uh, and attempting not to interfere Uh, too much in the lives of of humans, because they say that if they were to, in large numbers, show themselves around the world, they're afraid that the military will interpret it as an invasion and go to war against them, which could be devastating to this world that we live on, because their technology is so highly advanced. Mm -hmm. It's a lot to consider. Yes. It's all on the table still. Let's see mm-hmm. and let's pray. Most of all, let's take it seriously, journeyers. That's what I call my audience, the journeyers. Let's take this seriously. We're getting there. I wish we could speed this up in terms of the maturity level around the whole subject. We now have 60 years. Obviously, we know abductions were happening or encounters, to say it broadly, uh, a lot earlier than that. But 60 years seems to be that marker because of your very famous aunt and uncle. God bless them for all that they have endured. Mm -hmm. And I hope wherever they may be, they've gotten some answers because I'm sure they carry that with them into the beyond. Mm -hmm. So Kathleen, I want to thank you so, so much for your ongoing vigilance in this very important area. And you bring such a measure of credibility because of your, not because you're the the niece of Betty and Barney Hill, not just because of that, certainly, but because you are the consummate researcher. And for that, we thank you ever so much. Really and do. Thank you. My pleasure. Tell us uh, what you have coming up next that we're going to go on over to Patreon before we sign off and where we can find out more about the book, your website, etc. Okay. Well, uh, I you can go to my website at Kathleen with a K dash Martin, M-A-R-D-E-N dot com. And uh, you can purchase autographed copies of my five books from my website. And uh, where am I going from here? Well, (laughs) I am in the process of writing a new book. And uh, I have uh, begun a support group, you might say, or just a group for uh, people who have been long time uh, uh, experiencers, who have a deeper understanding of contact, who are not fearful, who are interacting with these non-human entities 
uh, in uh, more of an equal kind of partnership. And uh, we are exploring uh, where we are all going next. So you'll read about that on my website as well. I hopefully am going to be speaking at some conferences again this year. Uh, I intend to be at Roswell in July and in New Hampshire in September and also in northern Michigan in September. You'll read about all of those on my website as well. Make sure we'll and with the links. And uh, also that uh, article that I mentioned in my essays about the information I found uh, in the letters that Admiral Knowles' granddaughter gave to me. That's a lot of stuff, folks. First and foremost, we will have a link so you can go to Kathleen's great website. Woof! It's a lot. And I do hope you get out there in person. Enough of the virtual stuff, folks. Mm-hmm. I'm missing it greatly. So let's keep our fingers crossed. All right, Kathleen, again, thank you so much. Thank you, Journeyers. Hope to see you over on Patreon for the after show. Let's find out about the day Kathleen and her family learned of the sojourns of their now famous uh, niece, uh, aunt and uncle relatives. Let's just say we're going to head on over there right now. All right. We'll talk to you later. Thanks, guys. Have a great day.